I remember uh, talking about in the last episode about how you know I didn't want to be of someone, but you know there wasn't just you know the file of lover side of it. It was more of the way that I was conditioned to, and more of the way that I was that I felt. If, looking at towards like having children and and whatnot, my children having less Samoan futures and lighter skin, that they would be acceptable, accepted in society. Mm. Mm. That's how I felt. Like, and always it was always a thing that would be on my mind. Like, for them to be accepted more. That's really sad. Uh, as in. I'm not judging you, but it makes me sad that you felt that way, that your experiences with society and what they had to say about your skin colour made you think that. I think for me, because I was already fair, when I thought about um, what my children might have to deal with, I already figured they were going to be going through the same... No, before before you and I got together, like just thinking, I don't know, as a teenager or just wondering, you know, how you think about things. um, I already knew no matter what, my children would probably go through the same things that I experienced and that I didn't really feel like there was a way I could change that. So it was more of, it was more about navigating how to, educate people about your skin color doesn't define who you are who you are and what you can do mm-hmm. that's right and then thinking how I could do that with the children that I would have in the future how I would teach them that and try as much as possible to um, teach them or show them, how to manage that, how to educate people in society when they face those sorts of um, stereotypes or labelling. So what a stuffed up mentality they're having, like, mm. to be inclined to think that way, to, like, all right. Yeah. For wanting better for them but to lose... I don't think anyone can blame you for thinking that way. Yeah. If you think about how, uh, if you think about what we experienced and what um, people of influence said to us over time through our childhood and, you know, early teens, we had some really good role models like you've shared already. But there were also some people who knew the power of their words when they spoke about it and knew that it would have a an impact on you. Um, so no one can blame you for feeling that way or mm. thinking that if you went, if you found a partner that was fair um, or you had children that were fair skin, that they might have, um, that they might experience less, Judgment than you did when you were a child. Yeah. Like you always think, all right, I want them to have a better upbringing or growing up than I did. 
and you think, okay, what can I take away or what can I shelter them from? Mm-hmm. That will help. Mm. And because we didn't have the internet or media um, readily available, our, our most um, common forms of media was the newspaper, the radio, or television, right? So yep. if you think about the kinds of famous role models we had as children, they were movie stars that we could, you know, never relate to, mm. or they were most likely um, music artists or perf- performers or sports people. Short on the street. Oh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I, look, I'll give it, I'll let you have that one. Yeah, there, there were some really good role models um, when I got a little bit older on, on Shortland Street. But, you know, there were still lots of movies that followed that stereotypical narrative of Māori, you know, being portrayed as... Um, members from gangs and violence and um, alcoholism. So, you know, I'm trying to think now. Sports people, nipple players were, you know, something, people that I looked up to. Yeah, totally. Warriors. (laughs) Yeah. So, no, I think you're right, no. And how how you felt because of the people that influenced that thinking. I mean, what if I said things and I felt totally normal saying it, which makes it even worse. The fact that comments on race and skin color can be normalized and not an issue. Mm-hmm. I really feel like. There's a big movement now to to highlight and hold people accountable for the things that they say. Thanks to technology, yep. it's <clears throat> much easier to do that. Much easier to do that. Um, you know, a recent example, remember that um, craft brewery in New Zealand? What happened there? Um, he made a derogatory comment towards Māori, and then oh, that's right, that was recent. Face, yeah. Facebook comment, man, and that shut his business down. Real whore, eh? Yep, yeah. She she shared that, and then other people, yeah, that's you know, right. Took notice of it, and then stockists around New Zealand pulled his product mm. from their shelves. It just goes to show there is, you know. Um, a movement of people that are less tolerant to yep. accept those kinds of comments now, which is great because it's challenging. Firstly, it's challenging the narrative that we grew up with and it's um, attempting to make, you know, the society a better place for our children and their children. And secondly, it's... it's By not having to hide. Not having to hide, but it's... We're taking ownership now over reclaiming what, it. Yeah, what is being said about us? Yeah, as opposed to other people putting labels on us. Yeah, it reminds me of um, there was a post, uh, I think it was in Samoa Hub. I can't remember uh, the Facebook page, but they were talking about uh, non-Samoan getting 
like the bear and the malu tennis. Mm. It was a big conversation, but the admin who put up the the topic referenced, you know, someone saying uh, the N word and people and black people were using the N word, but it's not all right for others to use it. Mm. My comment was firstly, you've got two different, totally different areas mixed up. Mm. You've got memory comes from slavery. Yeah. Like generations and generations of African-Americans being put into slavery and use, and that word being used as a uh, derogatory derogatory term term against them. Mm -hmm. And so for them using it for themselves, they're reclaiming that word. Mm. They're taking that power away from the, from people using it as exactly. a derogatory term. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And they use it amongst themselves. Right. But how come it was on that thread? Like, was it a Pākehā person? No, Samoan. Well, so it was on the Samoan thread, and they were they were questioning how um, non-Samoan are getting tattoos, and is that normal, are getting the malu, and is that normal? Mm-hmm. I said my thoughts are it's with the Tafunga, who's the tattooist, Right. Um, they're the ones who bestow the power and honour and uh, of the tradition and to trust their knowledge and, and wisdom to tattoo someone. Right. So if they're comfortable with it, then you're, you'd be okay with that? Yeah, that's what I said. Right. So they ultimately, you know, they're, the tradition of tattooing is passed down through them. Mm. Who, who are uh, we to question exactly. them, hey? Yeah. yeah. But we're, also, we'd be judging people like, for me personally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah. But if someone else feels that that's their journey, that that's um, what they can relate to or that's a, a part of them, then who am I to say, uh, you know, that's that's not right. I don't have any authority to make that. Yeah comment on them for that side of things however if someone if someone's questioning me then i will absolutely say something about who are you to say what i can and can't do you know based on my skin color yeah um man would it take some serious guts to say you know oh yeah i'll I don't like to have that on them. But they'd have, they would have a reason. 100%. Yeah. Whether that was, you know, maybe same situation as us where the one partner is someone or... Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I think that was the case in this matter. Mm-hmm. But, um, someone, husband, buying your wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've known a few yep. couples back home in New Zealand who, who've done that together. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, our children, I, I haven't really seen um, the effects of or maybe the same experiences that we went through. And, you know, if we ask the children or we ask our oldest son and he maybe isn't mature enough in his head to realise that, people may be saying things that are harmful to him at this age. Do you think we're us being here in in Australia, 
has um, some effect, sorry, has dampened that effect on them. Um, I mean, in terms of being back home in New Zealand, I felt we were a lower class people. We were the minority. If you weren't a famous sports star or uh, on TV or entertainer, you're a a cleaner or... Oh, you mean like a lower class or middle class? Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's that's what we talked about was those stereotype jobs that Māori and Pacific people were sort of... um, expected to go into you know like the 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 expectation of maori and polynesian people to go to university and get a good job and i didn't really feel like i was pushed that much in primary school because you reckon they had their minds made up yeah wasn't until like you in high school, there were a handful of teachers who, for whatever reason, um, took an interest and saw something that I I didn't see or was too shy to um, to portray. And they tried to help me along. Yeah. Or take me under their wing and say, you know, it's okay to be good at this and, yeah, push me. Yeah, we had some mean teachers in high school. The Monga teachers, of course. Mm. And, then, and there was this one Bali teacher who taught Ari religious education. Mm-hmm. He was the man. He was, he would recognize the different cultures and, and you know, say hello in our diff- and that try say hello in that language. Mm-hmm. I think he spent a couple of years in Samoa as well. Um, and then he'll find interest. You know, he really made an effort to recognize and and um, not so much help you, just know that you weren't a minority or didn't Did feel he like acknowledge you, you for exactly. You were. Yeah. Yeah. And then anyway, every time we call the role, we'd be like, Tomasi, and I'm like, no, it's called me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really cool. That's something I also admire is uh, teachers or people who are trying to incorporate language that they may not have grown up with into their everyday lives to try mm. and normalise that and be part of that movement of reviving te reo Māori. It's... It's so cool to watch, and I miss that. Yep. You know, being here, we aren't exposed to that daily. So I do miss that side of things. But like you talked about, it's it's what we do in our home, and we're responsible for for what we do in our home and what we teach our children. So it is our responsibility to keep that alive, keep the language alive. So. If- anyone was listening and feeling that same way, what do you reckon? You mean reflecting on all the times they may have been labelled 
as a child or stereotyped or discouraged from being the best version of themselves. Yep. I say it's never too late to start, to let that past be in your past, acknowledge it, it happened, but it doesn't mean you have to live there and carry that narrative with you into the future. You can you can start changing that for yourself right now. Other things that, we've, that you've aspired to do? Mm-hmm. Find, find your people. Find your people that you feel comfortable and safe with sharing. Um, so you mean like your circle? Yes. Yes. And, and just remember that um, not everyone deserves to hear your thoughts. Yep. Not everyone is a friend to you. Narrow down your circle. Yeah. And then you'll know from there. Don't be anxious about about it too much, but just realize that there are some people who um, do not have your best interests at heart. So you don't. It's not about having the most followers or the most friends. It's about finding people that your Quality. your core values align with and that you feel comfortable and safe talking about these things with and that will help you Mm. and you'll help each other like you'll bounce off one another and you'll see others motivated and chasing their dreams and it will help you to do the same because I I mean we're getting into a bit of mental health stuff here but when you just feel like, oh, nothing is working, nothing's going the way I plan, or change isn't happening fast enough, or, you know, how how on earth am I supposed to fight against these stereotypes or what society has been conditioned to think this is all I can aspire to be? You're doing, the fact that you get up in the morning and you have a dream and you've decided, yeah, I'm going to chase that, you're doing more than anyone else who's just thinking, oh, my teacher said I couldn't do this or my family said I can't do this or my friend said I'd never be able to do that. Just keep going. And plan, eh? Yeah. Makes me think about what kind of legacy I want to leave for my children. That sounds really puffed up, but when I talk about legacy, I mean how I make people feel. That's what I want to be my legacy. They, actually, they learn from actions, eh? Mm-hmm. What each and every one of us do. Mm-hmm. That's what they take on board. Yeah. We only know what we know, right? Yeah. When you know better, you do better. And that's why they said to educate yourselves. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And this podcast is a big thing for us, like for them to say. Are you guys on Spotify? (laughs) (laughs) It it's not. It wasn't really about skin color. It was about people's perceptions Uh, and the hurtful things that people said to me when I was pregnant for the first time, and throughout my pregnancy the negative impact that that had on my mental health, Mm. Um, particularly about, uh, particularly the comments about the size of our 
baby because apparently you and I aren't the smallest of people or we're not average size people therefore my child's going to be like supersized or oversized yeah do you remember that um and also the maternity care that we received I remember you coming to the maternity the um, antenatal appointments and I used to go to everyone yeah and you came to everyone and in my head I was thinking oh you know you don't need to come to everyone like you know you can go and work or you know do something else and at that time I didn't understand you know why you did it but I had been conditioned to to think that men didn't come to those sorts of things right Mm. so you would come along and the midwife would be talking to me but then it started to be really it became really obvious that she didn't she didn't acknowledge you at all i put it down as skin color that's what i thought 100 percent I thought it was like a, a male thing and she thought maybe you just were sort of sitting there but you weren't interested. But now I think back and, and I wonder to myself, how many men come drag themselves to an antenatal appointment and sit there and aren't interested? Like that's a bit sad. And maybe there are men out there who do that and maybe there are men out there who, who come along for other reasons, you know. But... You genuinely came along because you were interested and you were invested in learning about the whole process and you wanted to be part of that. And the fact that she had that much um, control over what information she shared Shared. with you, right, right? and how much she involved you in that process really pissed me off. I didn't realise it until we were going through that same process with Mehana. Mm. And things were completely different. And then I was like, hang on a second. So that experience, so you recognize that the first time we went through it, that that's not normal. Yeah. I know because our second midwife, completely different experience. 100%. Right, right from amazing. antenatal to postnatal and including the birth. Yeah. Her, her way, she... Even if she did not fully understand the cultural significance, she made an effort to include you when you yep. were there because she recognized that you were invested in the whole entire process. So during the first or the birth of our first child, I was petrified, like so scared. I was scared about the size of the baby. I was scared about how much it was going to hurt. Because of these big muscles. (laughs) No, because of people's (laughs) words. And that's why I never now, no, actually since my, since our second son, sorry. Mm. I never, I'm very conscious of what I say to a pregnant woman or to, you know, the partner. I'm very sensitive to how they may react to that because people were just, they just said dumb shit. I'm just going to call it that. It was dumb. They had no filter. They had no um, compassion to how that those comments would make me feel. 
and that most of them would say it is a joke and I wish I had a backbone back then to turn around and say to them you know what gives you the right to say that kind of stuff to me whether you think it's a joke or not a joke or not it's actually not funny you're the only one laughing in yeah. actual fact you're making me feel like shit it was worse when they would say things and you would think it was a joke, but they had like a straight face. Like, oh, yeah. Like are they, you for real? Yeah. Like they knew it wasn't a nice thing to say, yeah. right? People were just. Well, they didn't have, they didn't even have that filter or think it was mm-hmm. nasty. They just yeah. thought it was normal. Choose your words, Fano, honestly. You just, you really have no idea how much of an impact your words can have on people um whether that be inspiring or absolutely disgusting oh it was so gross and so that that birth was very traumatic for for me i had zero confidence in myself oh man remember that first midwife went went home oh our actual legit midwife midwife gapped it after you know i mean we'll say it's a few hours but maybe she was Maybe there were other people that, maybe there were other women she was on who the were clock. in labor, right? right? So maybe she had clocked up her hours. I don't know. But the fact that it was our first child and that she. Um, she was the only she midwife we'd seen. Tired. Yeah. Yep. She's the only midwife that we'd seen throughout the whole antenatal process. We hadn't met the yeah. on call midwife nope. or her second. And the second lady was actually awesome. She was freaking amazing. <laughs> we were like, where have you been this entire time, you know? We could have done with having you for the last eight months. I um, got more acknowledgement in that period than just having that second, <laughs> that time that we had the second midwife to you giving birth. Yeah. Then I did with uh, throughout the, all the antenatal classes. Yeah, she was great, hey. Um which was really cool. That that was something positive. But um, then after that, holy heck, got sent out to Botany uh, Maternity Unit. Mm -hmm. They shoved me in the very last room where you could fit four four other women. And I felt so alone. I felt so scared. It was not a um, it was not a nice experience. I and didn't that, cope being home. No, I think that's sort of where it went downhill. Really, we went through the the pregnancy, having to deal with people's dumb comments. Um, so then, after having the baby, holy heck, we didn't have enough confidence in ourselves to say. At times, no, I'm not going to do that because that doesn't feel right to me. Do you think um, our age and maturity had a lot to um, play with that? You mean or, the fact that people thought that they could just tell us? Oh, no, just do? the way that we, like, we were young, hadn't ex- experienced anything like that before, and so... If, do you think if we were older and more mature that we would have had more of a backbone to say, shut up? <laughs> no. You know why? Right. 
because every pregnancy that we've been through, we've met people, whether it's so, in the yeah, in the waiting room or in the birthing suite or afterwards. Yeah, they always look at the birth of us. So. And they no, and and you hear the same things yeah. whether they're mature couples or not. They experience the same things. People acting as though they're dumb, not acknowledging the partner, saying insensitive comments about, you know, how big you are or how big your bump is, therefore your baby's going to be this size. Just, no, I think it's entirely across the board. Yep. I don't I don't think it makes a difference of how young we are. It might mean that we cop a bit more being young parents because yeah. people have make that assumption that we're dumb. And we're not dumb. Um, and your paternal instincts count for something, right? All that knowledge that and your memories from your childhood and your experiences growing up, that's what you start um, leaning on as a parent. You look to your closest role models who are your parents or your siblings or your aunties and uncles or your yeah. cousins and you go, oh, they did that, so maybe I'll try this. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. You pick, like, certain attributes from certain mm -hmm. people. You take the things that feel the most um, natural to you or yep. that you relate to and you think, yeah, okay, that feels like the right thing to do, and you just do that. Like, do you remember when we took Matthias to sleep training school? Oh. Sleep Sleep clinic. No. Sleep training. How could you forget that one? Because he just cried and cried and cried all the time, Fano. Like it was it was a hard time for not just us, but we live with my mum at the time and my two brothers. The whole family was like walking on eggshells because we would we thought that it needed to be quiet and he didn't sleep a lot. He was always unsettled. So the midwife sent us to the Plunkett Sleep Clinic. I'm pretty sure it was called Sleep Clinic. Hey? Yeah, the same midwife. And you know what happened? You came along and all the women there were like, oh, what are you doing here? Do you remember that? We all sat in that room and we were learning that bloody method, that triangle method where they sleep, play. play. No, sleep, eat, play, sleep, you know that? Yep pyramid thing and um not those it pyramid was... schemes <laughs> there, there were no other partners or males there and you even then i was like oh gosh look at them staring now <laughs> but you wanted to learn that exactly. for it's, yourself it's not like you were going to be the only one to put baby to bed mm -hmm. that's right but oh, just that experience in itself, you know, having to put your baby in a cot in a room by themselves and just let them cry it out, we swore we would never do that again. No. We did it. Don't get me wrong. We did it for what? I don't know. Months, maybe a year or so. I don't know. But we knew better the next time around, and we've never done it since. Nope. And you can recognise the difference in terms of how the children cope 
with things. Yeah. But for us, that method did not work. It didn't feel natural that to me. That was a learning curve of mm -hmm. what not to do. Mm -hmm. For us, yep. for our family, it was not the best thing for our family. It actually did nothing for my mental health. And then I was diagnosed with postnatal depression. I couldn't breastfeed him properly. Just all these things happened. I got really sick. Such a big contrast to the second pregnancy yeah. and birth. Huge difference. But those stereotypes and those labels and those comments, people had no idea the effect. Or they maybe you don't know now how much your words can hurt somebody when they're going through that. Just don't say it. Don't say anything. Don't ask a woman when she's going to have kids. Don't tell a woman that her stomach's a certain size, therefore her baby's going to be a certain size. Don't make any insensitive comments like that. Just don't do it. <laughs> don't. And don't ask what the due date is. Just don't. Because that's a scary fact. You don't know whether they're freaking out about it like, or how they're coping with Oh, it's coming up soon. I, I have so much to do. Or, or, or then the date comes yeah. and goes, and then holy shit, now they're worried because they've told everyone yeah. the due date is on this specific date, and the baby's not here yet. So then you get more questions. Oh, try this, do that, and you're like, you know what? Just piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Take your suggestions. Will... <laughs> turn it sideways. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, D did not have a backbone then, but we certainly did when the, the other two came along. <laughs> we knew what we wanted. You knew what how you wanted the birth. Yep. Had a whole plan. I'm like, oh, we can have a plan? Oh, <laughs> thanks. We have a say in how that happens? Oh, that's oh. fantastic. What do you yeah. mean, how do you want it? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, yeah, it was great. But the first... That first experience taught me how to speak to others, how to speak to women mm. and their partners. Being on the too. receiving end. Yeah. yeah. And we've talked to lots of couples who are, you know, in the beginning stages of trying to fall pregnant or who are currently pregnant or they've just had children and so on. And our negative experience has helped us to communicate and support those who are going through similar things. Yep, for the dads, or seem to be dads, it is a scary thing. But like Mal said before, you find your circle and you get suggestions and you pick and choose attributes that, uh, that you've liked and seen that, seen that work or whether it be that through experiences with, through yourself and you lean on those. And then I think it's important to speak up. Mm. Makes all the difference. And you feel so much better mm. when you say to someone, do you know, I did not appreciate you saying that. 
Yeah. Because when you don't say anything, it just rings in your head constant. But it also gives them permission to keep saying that. Yep. But thank you for listening, guys. And um, yeah, if you liked this episode and you want to continue to follow our journey, please remember to subscribe and leave us a review. Have a fun.